Okay, so like I know we talked about like gay related stuff to open last episode, but something's just been on my mind. You didn't have to pour it on by starting with okay, so Well, like... it's Pride <laughs> month, so yes, now we enter with the gay stuff, okay? It's going to be gay right, stuff fine. from here on out. Yeah. All right, go. Welcome guys, to the Aspiring Snobs podcast, a a, pod, a movie podcast about the intersectionality of sex, <laughs> of sexuality, race, gender, and uh, film. There you go. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Queer theory from here on out, guys. That's it. Yeah. All right. The first hundred whatever episodes. That was a dry run. Now we're now we're <laughs> straight into nothing but queer theory. Okay. I've got a queer theory. Sufjan Stevens is he gay? Uh, he falls somewhere in the Kinsey scale. I would assume. <laughs> you think he's on the spectrum? Is that yeah? Is the yeah? Is the Kinsey scale a thing still? Or uh, have we dismissed that? They replaced it. It's been so long since I've seen that movie starring Liam Neeson. <laughs> Ah, it's claim to fame. No one knew about it until that Liam Neeson film. Exactly. Thank God for movies. Otherwise, I wouldn't know about these things. <laughs> no, Greg. The only reason I ask, and not that it matters, because obviously yeah. it doesn't matter, but the fact is he just released two new songs for Pride Month, June 2019, and mm-hmm. he did songs for Call Me By Your Name. He does a lot of stuff that's like adjacent to queer material, so I'm just kind of... I'm a little confused. Okay, you don't think that he's... That he's releasing things to coincide with Pride Month. I'm sure he'd be the only person with any commercial interest to do that. <laughs> well, no, there's a, but there's also the fact that it's he also did music for Call Me By Your Name. That's the other thing. Well, maybe that's where his interest started. Okay. Oh, his interest. Is that is in... that a queer movie? Because I thought like it ends with the guy going to get married to a woman. And Elio, uh, our young protagonist, is kind of left to the wind and still unsure about his sexuality. I think that's how the book and the movie ends. Oh, really? But, oh, you don't at least think that's it's... that's my oh. interpretation of it. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay, I've n- I've never seen it. But the point all is, right. I just want a clear answer. That's all. And look, <laughs> I know that's wrong of me because that makes me sound like, you know, one of these like Middle America tabloids. Like, ooh, I've heard rumors, but I, like, <laughs> and that's beside the point. But there's still a yeah. part of me who just wants to know, because. I'm interested. That's all. (laughs) John, you're a married man. You shouldn't be chasing. I'm just saying. I think he gets me in a way no one else will ever will. (laughs) I'm surprised you're you're questioning him and not uh, another young lad uh, Mm -hmm. who's who's really delved into uh, artistic artistic endeavors centered around uh, queerness and sexuality. That's one James Franco. Mm. Well, I think he's doing it just for lulls. Or like poking the bear, <laughs> like obviously he has no like real. Talent. Are you sure, John? Movies take a lot of work, and to do <sighs> when you're one, that rich, when one, you're that like, idle rich, yes, he does have that kind of time. <laughs> yeah, I think he's doing I, it for. Uh, let's be honest, attention. God, what? When did I become like a 1950s housewife? Oh my God, what happened? To me? <laughs> John, is your life so dull that you need to focus on the sexuality? Of I mean, favorite? I don't mind if they're gay. Just don't rub it in my face. All these rainbows. <laughs> It's pri- it's apparently Pride Month, and there's rainbows everywhere at Target. It's too much. Yeah. It's too much, I swear. John, it's true. You're too concerned with, you're too consumed with the sexual identity of actors and musical artists and, and celebrities. Mm. I think you should focus on what Pride Month is really about, the brands mm. <laughs> trying to attract your custom. Hell so yeah. see what brands are going to be at your local Pride Parade and support them because they, uh, I don't know, support you by putting a rainbow flag in their Twitter <laughs> avatar or something. <laughs> a Pride Month for me doesn't officially start until Grubhub changes over their logo to the <laughs> rainbow version. Because when I think gay pride, I think Grubhub. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Because uh, people are too busy having sex and can't go huggy. <laughs> they need to order in. 
<laughs> Greg, how does this all make you feel? During do you not feel welcome? Do you feel like it's a crime <laughs> to be straight? Does I not feel is. welcome? I I told yes I I believe I. If you if you really want to revisit the aspiring snobs catalog, last year I did a field report from Pride Los Angeles. Ah, oh, that's correct. You uh, did. Oh, sorry. This was Pride in West Hollywood. There is another Pride in downtown Los Angeles. That's how that's how expansive it's become. On a different weekend. Yes. Oh, this is exhausting. I can't. Keep track. <laughs> and I granted, I I understand that. The, Pride celebrations are not tailored to me, but I'll be damned if I'll be excluded. So <laughs> I, like you, I think there. Yeah, I try to. I do a little curiosity when, say, a brand changes their Twitter avatar to something rainbow related, and it and it does pique my interest. But also, I can't see through the cynicism that this is basically just a way for people to sell stuff and extract more money out of your wallet. Of course. Because we went to, my girlfriend and I went to the mall the other day, and every window display was just like, hey, celebrate Pride with this stupid tank top or something like that for $30. <laughs> I mean, it's worse than that. Again, they're peddling this idea that they're woke brands who love to celebrate gay pride, but then in the back end, in the back end they're giving their money and tax dollars to Republican candidates in order to push a business-friendly agenda. So, yeah. You know, not only do you have the kind of cynicism, but also just a smattering of hypocrisy. Mmm, delicious. Just delicious. <laughs> Absolutely. Which is why I still support Chick-fil-A. Now, the, the, the amount <laughs> At least that they consistent. donate to anti-LGBT groups and causes is abhorrent. However, they stick by it. They're <laughs> honest about it. They don't try to hide it like Target or Coachella, thank you very much. Yeah. Okay? They're upfront, and they're honest, and they're true. Good for them. Exactly. Yeah, and that and that should be commended. You know, God bless Chick Fil A. I'm gonna go that far. <laughs> exactly. Did you know they play worship music oh. when you go in there? Do they play Lauren Daigle? Because that's kind of like she's like the latest big crossover. No, it's not. It's not Lauren Daigle. It's like, uh, oh, what's that? There was a terrible um, biopic that came out earlier. Um, oh yeah, I can only imagine. I can only they play like imagine. instrumental versions of of, uh, of of pop songs like that, or excuse when me, pop worship comes. songs. <laughs> Yeah, I can only imagine. It's a horrible song. Like, I just assume any kind of poppy-esque Christian song like that's kind of adjacent to rock is just done by Hillsong. That's yeah, it. You're like, not wrong. I mean... Yeah, they've, they've definitely flooded the market. What percentage do you think it is? Um, let me think about my latest church service. Uh, <laughs> they started out with one Hillsong. Mm -hmm. So, and they, and they typically do five to six songs every service. So, yes, at least 20%. Mm. At the very least. At the, that's the basement. Oh, dear. Of Hill songs, yes. I mean, why aren't these Christians more creative? That's all I'm wondering. <laughs> why can't they be like the most creative Christian I know, Sufjan Stevens? Boom! Bringing it back. <laughs> Maybe that's why he's all obsessed about all the gay stuff. He wants to be a woke Christian. Maybe that's his thing. Maybe. Yeah, what, what would Jesus do in this situation? That's mm -hmm. what I ask myself uh, every time I, I enter the recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> that is an excellent question, Greg. Welcome. Yeah, is this podcast contributing to the mission, John? I, I for like, me, it's it's God's mission. For you, it's uh, the advancement of LGBT rights. So, <laughs> that's the great thing about this podcast. It is it is all things to all people. Absolutely, if, especially if you're a white male, <laughs> a white male in America, uh, a very underrepresented group, if you ask me. I mean, if you go to the iTunes description, according to them, according to yeah. the myopic people, it's a movie podcast. But please, we've obviously expanded. We're an empire now. Since this is a movie podcast, John, why don't we actually get to our movie, huh? Oh, I suppose. All right, guys, get your Fitbits ready, because we are taking the 39 steps. Ladies and gentlemen, 
with your kind attention and permission, I have now the honor to present to you one of the most remarkable men in the world. Simple man. Every day he commits the memory. Fifty new facts and remembers every one of them. Facts from history, from geography, from newspapers, from scientific textbooks. Millions and millions of them down to the smallest detail. Test him, ladies and gentlemen. Ask him any questions. I've got it, I've got it. Of course there are no papers missing. John, you, you and I love trivia, so I'm going to share with you another piece of trivia here. Ooh. For the second week in a row, I saw a stage adaptation of the movie we discussed in a particular episode. Last week it was Steel Magnolias, and now it's The 39 Steps. <laughs> now, granted, this the movie that we're talking about, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, is based on a book. Uh, the play I saw was in Piccadilly Circus in London and is a comedic take on it. So, Oh, interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, I love the fact that you got to squeeze in the fact that you've been to London. <laughs> yes. As as did you. And, John, why did you – you wouldn't have visited lest I was there, I so suppose. you're welcome. I could have I could have taken a trip to Italy for all I know. I don't know what I would have done with that amount of money, so who knows? <laughs> what amount of money? <laughs> Who knows how much it costs? The conversion rates and the euros, the pounds, it was, you know, money's no object to me usually. So. But it's interesting let's, that you... Let's not, let's not, let's ignore our privilege for a bit. Okay. And, <laughs> well, it's interesting you brought up the fact that this was a, pl- or they've adapted it to a play because yeah. I obviously got the sense from Steel Magnolias watching it, it's like, oh yeah, this is definitely theater material. Here, I was kind of shocked to find out it was based on a book because this is just mm, pure uncut noir just you know cut yeah. it up and inject it right into my veins <laughs> yeah and i think this I'm, I'm not sure this wasn't the the first big hit of alfred hitchcock but it was definitely a demonstration of his talents mm-hmm. and just what an exceptional filmmaker he is because that not only is it incredibly well done for a movie in 1935 we should also acknowledge that yeah this movie's approaching 80 years or sorry over 80 years old and I still found it very compelling, which is a very rare feat indeed, but also just the amount of fun that it is. Yes, and I think that's something that still somewhat translates, although everything about Alfred Hitchcock's work doesn't translate to the 21st century, uh, the amount of fun and cheekiness that he has uh, uh, invariably does. I mean, I think this is also part of the help that this movie has is the fact that it is a very British production, and it feels oh, yeah. it, and... I think there's that kind of dry British wit that kind of permeates the rest of it, even though it is a thriller, even though it is a mystery, like there's still that kind of caustic wit to it and just kind of those moments of levity that really kind of elevate it and keep it, even if the tone is not 100% consistent all the time, at least it keeps it kind of moving and keeps it as a kind of more Rick Roaring adventure than, you know, like a stern, serious drama, which it could have easily turned into. Yes, it's inescapably British. Um as you said, by via the tone, and I also think the xenophobia. Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> Greg, whatever Let's, do you mean? I I I saw the culture clash between you know the cosmopolitan Londoners and those uh, those simpleton Scottish those simple <laughs> simple Scots up north. No, I I was speaking more to this is an espionage thriller, mm-hmm. and as far as we know, at the the information that's that desperately can't get out of the country is is acted upon by a foreign agent uh what what foreign agency that is is never stated but uh we we know it's it's certainly not it's certainly not under the queen's dominion (laughs) even though their accents are extremely vague we hear that we only get like we only get a few lines of dialogue from the actual spies and it's all like 
vaguely European. Like it's it's definitely not British, but it's definitely not like so succinct as like French or anything like that. <laughs> no. So yeah, let's set it up. We follow our main protagonist is Richard Hane. Hane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he goes through different aliases. Hammond. Because, yeah. Yeah. Hane's because hard. like a lot of Hitchcock productions, it's, it's a wronged man on the run. Mm-hmm. And so it starts out, he goes to performance, and yeah, this is this is our first sign that this is a, a very well done movie, because older, crappier movies from this era would just have like a simple establishing shot. Here we have this awesome, like, tracking over a miniature saying, music hall. <laughs> and we and we kind of trace the action, like, via close-up through the door and, and follow a guy through the ticket booth. And so that's, that's all, like, very well done. But then we get to the performance. Uh, just demonstrates the dearth of entertainment they had back in 1935 <laughs> because we uh, we int- were introduced to Mr. Memory, the guy who commits 50 facts a day and will take will solicit uh, questions, random questions about um, how far apart cities are or what's <laughs> what year a uh, member of royalty was born. <laughs> just very mundane facts like that, and and apparently this wowed audiences in the mid 30s. Okay, so. That's very unfair criticism, Greg, because A, <laughs> before the internet, knowing that much stuff was pretty impressive, okay? That's true. And then B, this is like your dream job, okay? To stand on stage <laughs> and show how smart you are. You were just jealous. You were just envious that it's like, that could be me. If only we were exactly. about movies. <laughs> if only, Yes, if only I knew the distance between Winnipeg and Toronto. <laughs> ah, but that's important. Well, I mean, it's important for a lot of reasons, this opening yeah. scene, but it also introduces our main character as Canadian. It's a very international movie. <laughs> I guess. Uh, all, all under the Commonwealth, though. No, of course. <laughs> the p- plot kicks off when he's introduced to, I believe, a German bird. Mm-hmm. Uh, and following like a gunshot, there's a bit of a row. It's a rowdy crowd here in London. And uh, a gunshot fires, and that's our first, like, that's our inciting incident. The fact that this is a life and death stakes are introduced to the story. And that's when uh, this woman, Miss Schmidt, um, I believe her name is Schmidt, right? Um, well, she goes by Anna. Anna, yes. Anna uh, Smith. Uh, we don't really, I, I mean, again, alias. It's not really her real name. Yeah, it's alias, and I think it is a pretty uh, obvious German accent, speaking of, like, foreign, foreign influence or something. <laughs> and so she's she's obviously uh, rattled and says, hey, Mr. Han- Mr. Hannay, can I uh, spend the night with you? Exactly. And it kind of sets up, it's, it's a nice kind of character moment, because... We first get introduced to them. They kind of trade barbs back and forth. He wants to know more. And it kind of introduces Mr. Haney as a, as a kind of aloof. Uh, even when the situation seems dire, he's always kind of like joking or always kind of quick with a quip. So I think this is, even though the movie kind of started a little slow for me, I think this is a nice kind of introductory scene where we kind of get his sense of character. And also just by the way he dresses, the costumes in this movie. <laughs> always has his back collar popped. Like, regardless of which jacket he's stolen <laughs> or whatever, he always has that popped. Yes, same with the perfect facial hair as well. <laughs> I mean, it only takes, the whole movie only takes place over a few days, Greg. Come on. I know. Well, I'm saying, like, that pencil-thin mustache mm. yeah, looking like a classic 30s-era movie star, <laughs> like Errol Flynn or something like that. Got it. Darling, how lovely to see you. I was desperate. I'm terribly sorry. I had to do it. Look here. My name's Hanny. They're after me. I, I swear I'm innocent. You've got to help me. I've got to keep free for the next few days. Well, you've seen the man pass you in the last few minutes. This is the man you want, I think. 
when we passed just now. He's way in here and told me his name was Hanny. Is your name Hanny? No. Are you coming in to tea, sir? I'll be right along. He does take her home, and she's she's obviously very paranoid, very on edge about something. They're being tailed by two folks, mm -hmm. two very sinister-looking guys. And basically early that morning, she gets stabbed in the back and killed. And suddenly, Mr. Hene becomes the prime suspect and has to go on the run. Yeah. And so, yeah, this is pretty well done. I think a little slow kind of to begin with because it plays very ambiguously. And... And the character played by uh, Robert Donnett, like, he knows exactly what to do immediately. He's like, <laughs> okay, I got to change first with the milkman. Like, it, it's not, he's not like an everyman. It's clear that he's not an everyman mm -hmm. and is somewhat prepared for the situation. And it's not until later that we realize why that is. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then it just kind of, it's, now it's an actual chase movie. So that's when the things kind mm -hmm. of really start taking off. Once he gets on the train and we get that kind of those great like shifting shots where he's like trying to hide in different cabins and we finally get introduced to our blonde yeah. <laughs> yes this is madeline carroll playing pamela mm -hmm. and what i loved about the scene is as soon as she entered the frame i was like oh gosh here's the blonde here's the woman <laughs> i knew she was going to get involved in the plot and what's great is that that subversion of expectations she immediately turns me and it's like get this man away from me and she yeah. exits the movie for at least, like, 20 to 30 minutes. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, at the very least. So, you're right. I mean, this being... A, this kind of loosely adapts the book on which it's based, and Hitchcock being a commercial, cynical <laughs> filmmaker that he is, it's like, well, we got to have some romance in here. Mm -hmm. And you're right. It is It is interesting what kind of allies he finds along the way, because I, I believe following the train, he winds up at a farm in Scotland, the patriarch of this farm is obviously very suspicious but the wife is more understanding and and aids his escape mm -hmm. once the authorities do come by and then we're finally we're finally reintroduced to this blonde and then they get handcuffed together because they both get implicated in this crime mm -hmm. and i'm thought like oh that's where that's where this kind of cliche comes from <laughs> and i was wondering why we waited until an hour into this 90 minute movie that we finally like had them handcuffed together and had this abrasive tension that they're forced to encounter exactly and so for the latter half of the movie it becomes that classic like tete-a-tete -tete, the his girl friday is like oh yeah and then they're handcuffed together so you get that physical comedy as well yeah but again like it's well done enough that you kind of ignore the cliches or kind of the problematic underpinnings so <laughs> yeah um i'll get to that later in spotlight i think um but what did you think of so the it's funny that you brought up the fact that like the strange allies that it kind of comes up with because one of the other problems i think with the movie is every time he kind of meets someone that he thinks is going to be an ally. So the reason why he ends up in Scotland is because Anna told him, I need to meet this person in this part of Scotland. And yeah. he's a professor. And there's obviously not that many people in Scotland, or at least not as wealthy as a professor. So he's able to kind of deduce who it is, and then they eventually meet. And at first, it's very cordial. It's very friendly. But then it becomes clear that the professor is actually working for the wrong side, and they turn him in. And then... Hanny thinks that, you know, oh, if I explain properly to the sheriff that he'll believe me. And initially the sheriff does believe him. Then he's like, ah, oh, your whole cockamamie story is full of lies. <laughs> <laughs> You're under arrest again. <laughs> yeah, so although the movie's fun and pretty light on its feet, it, we do start spinning our wheels at, at this point with the introduction of our main baddie. Mm -hmm. This professor who she also notes like is missing the top half of his, of his pinky finger. That's also something like sinister about our antagonist here. And you're right, because 
at this point, they still didn't explain why Hane is so smooth in these situations, like how he keeps like getting in and out. And that's why I was so thankful to finally get to that conflict with Madeline when they're tied together and they have to, uh, they're forced to collaborate <laughs> and they do find an ally in like the tavern owner. That's, I think that in particular is my favorite scene when mm-hmm. the, old, the old woman at the tavern kind of forces the authorities away by um, throwing the book at them and saying like, did you, did you seriously have a drink after a curfew? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's kind of weird. She's like, for them, she's a stickler for the rules, but obviously she yeah. thinks that uh, Pamela and Hanny are kind of like this, oh, this couple running away, deeply in love, and so she kind of gives them completely the benefit of the doubt, even though obviously they're fugitives on the, from the wall. Uh, what are our friends outside looking for you for? I didn't do it. Of course you did. But why come all this way to Scotland to tell me about it? I believe she was coming to see you about some air ministry secret. She was killed by a foreign agent who was interested too. Tell you what the foreign agent looked like? It wasn't time. No, there was one thing. Part of his little finger was missing. Which one? This one, I think. Sure it wasn't this one? So... I think it starts strongly and then ends strongly. Yeah, in the middle, you're right. It does kind of drag its feet. And I think that's also because the production value... And maybe this is something we take for granted now, but the amount of the varied locations that they could have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this movie makes incredible use of the Scottish moors, which is not something you associate with noir. Mm-hmm. Or just outdoor shots in general. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. There is uh, one one sequence in particular that may not survive today's technology, but it does look like it was shot in the 30s, like the the, the film stock is sped up, and yeah, it looks like they're... <laughs> but they, you're right, there actually are outdoors running along the moor. And so, like, yeah, you, you appreciate the, the change of scenery or something unexpected, like where exactly the story's going. But when we retreat to this, like, it's it's like a cocktail party and it's just, it's just as, as um, elaborate and kind of cliche as you expect a, a, a chamber drama to be. Yeah, the, that sequence in particular didn't ex- didn't exactly grab me the way that when uh, Hannah and Madeline are handcuffed together that I was kind of drawn back in. So you're right. Like, it's not it's not the. It's not a kind of fun rollick all throughout. I mean, it does have these dead moments, but overall, it's still like a, a very compelling piece in terms of just being a fun, although empty, adventure. And that's why I want to get to, like, what what exactly is at stake here? Mm-hmm. Like, what are the 39 steps that Anno warns him about that he needs to find and keep on UK soil? Well, I mean, we don't really get a... We only get kind of a vague answer of that because... Yeah. Once he figures out where he needs to go, turns out we bring the story full circle. He needs to go back to Mr. Memory because yeah. the way he – apparently the professor's plan is that he uses this guy, Mr. Memory, who has a photographic memory to kind of – to get information out of the country. That's ultimately his plan. And so once Hanny kind of uh, confronts them with this, he asks, like, what are the 39 steps – and we only get a vague notion Mr. Memory has to answer because he's obviously on stage and he's just so compelled. He only says it's a secret kind of syndicate, an evil criminal organization, and that's when he gets shot. So we don't really get a, a satisfying answer. But I thought it was the way it terminates, like it, you kind of get that final shot where he's, he's lying dead and he breathes his last and you just get the two hands, kind of the close-up of the two hands kind of grabbing each other. Like, it's over. It's finally over. I thought that was like yeah. nice that I was satisfied by just the emotionality of it instead of like getting a kind of firm answer specifically. We know that it, they're trying to sneak plans out for rocket fuel or something like that, but it's like at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. It's all about has justice been served? And it kind of feels like it has been. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. That's true. 
Yeah, and you do get a sense that at least Hane is exonerated in a way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, our charming hero does get to uh, uh, be a criminal later. <laughs> <laughs> does get to continue his criminal ways uh, for a later day. But <laughs> you're right. Uh, I think the tone really carries the movie, and you, you don't concern yourself too much with the details in terms of who this foreign actor is. It's presumably Germany, but we never really found out for sure. Or exactly what the 39 steps are, whether they're these nuclear secrets or some kind of part of the war effort we never know for sure however you're right the fact that it does kind of come full circle and it feels like oh they prepared this mystery at least like ahead of time Mm -hmm. it is satisfying in a way and i think it is buoyed by just the the charm of the actors as well as uh the way the I think pacing, too. The fact that this is also like a 90-minute movie after, geez, how many movies have we seen where it's like two hours and they stretch, they seem to stretch ad infinitum. Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that this movie is like short, sweet, and to the point. Uh, the point being just having a fun, rollicking adventure across the British, uh, the British uh, Great Britain, I should say. Yep. Um, <laughs> I was about to say British Isles. That's not correct, but <laughs> the fact that the fact that we do have this fun adventure and it's very well done, production-wise, uh, story-wise to a certain extent, yeah, it, it, we do kind of ride this this joy of the movie. Like uh, that's enough to like kind of carry us through. And I mean, I think that's also kind of classic Alfred Hitchcock. He's all about the sensation and all about the story having momentum. Now, when you look into his movies, do you find particular themes, or do you find in a kind of rich thematic resonance? Probably not, but again, he's a rip-roaring time, good time at the movies, so heck, you gotta, you gotta reward it on its own merits, so good job, Mr. Hitchcock. I mean, yeah. besides, <laughs> besides the, the thematic underpinning of don't trust foreigners. They're bad people. <laughs> exactly, and this, this is all what this is exactly what rear, rear window is about. Mm, to like spy on your neighbors. Make sure they aren't communists. <laughs> we need to prevent the red menace from inter- infiltrating America. <laughs> was there a single movie from the 50s and 60s that wasn't about paranoia, Greg? That, um, an American in Paris, as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> good answer, good answer. <laughs> yeah. Singing in the Rain? Um, I'm sure that, I don't think that mm, was That about, was about career paranoia. It, She's after you, Greg. <laughs> yes, exactly. The women are after us. Sound is like uh, is like communism <laughs> trying to take away our livelihood. Where's the of... What are the 39 steps? Come on, answer up! What are the 39 steps? The 39 steps is an organization of spies collecting information on behalf of the foreign office of... <laughs> device renders the engine completely silent. Am I right, sir? Quite right, O'Shea. Uh, I think that wraps up our discussion quite nicely. Exactly. 
Bye, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) No, Greg, we can't end yet. We can't end so soon. I think we need to give them a little bit extra, uh, just a little taste, a little tease, a little mm, zhuzh. Let's give them our signature ending segment. Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. Yes, this is where we recommend something that we've seen either that week. Usually it falls to being that week. Um, <laughs> unless I could find a way to tie something I watched years ago mm-hmm. into uh, the movie we watched this week. Well, thankfully, I have the opportunity to give you something that's a little bit of both. Um, ah. I recently discovered another YouTube channel. That's right. It's another YouTube channel recommendation, oh, folks. Gosh. Oh, come on. Don't be a pud. <laughs> YouTube is the new way we talk about movies, Greg, okay? It's the new I... visual language. It's the new storytelling. God, I hope not. <laughs> all it is, all it is, is just complaining about the Game of Thrones finale. <laughs> it's a hive mind. Not it's... this channel. Not this channel, Greg. This channel, and it relates back to the movie we just talked about, is called Pop Culture Detective Agency. Okay, I'm skeptical already, but what? go on. <laughs> Greg, Detective Agency. That means they're fans of noir and. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if I've ever we've never we've never done a deeper discussion of noir, but I've I've got a theory I'd like to advance and put in a YouTube video essay, and that is people who like noir are sickos who only <laughs> are consumed with structure and uh, style and not really with sentimentality, mm. and are probably emotionally dead inside, and that's why they they find film noir so compelling. But Greg, somewhere in a far distant Malibu home, David Fincher is screaming his head off because his ears are burning so hot. <laughs> That's a surprise. I mean, yeah, obviously David Fincher's work is just pouring, like, just exploding with sentimentality. (laughs) Anyway, it's actually just the opposite. It's a uh, YouTube... Well, I mean, he's only been doing uh, video essays for a short while now, but he he, um, kind of does more of a deep dive into thematic uh, themes that you might find reoccurring in some movies, specifically about masculinity and how it's portrayed in movies. That seems to be his... uh, big point of contention, how it's kind of betrayed, and how it's uh, festered a lot of toxicity in our culture, he feels. Okay. And I want to call out one uh, video essay specifically where he talks about the kidnapping as romance trope, <laughs> which kind of fits uh, neatly into it. the movie we just discussed, doesn't it? <laughs> I, t- yes, to a certain extent. I, I believe this is the uh, damsel in distress paradox, or just basically... It, Basically, how we interpret the roles of women in society. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, A, he isn't lacking in examples. Like, he found a ton of examples that I didn't even think about. It's like, oh, yeah, this is kind of an example of that, isn't it? Um, The one that really sticks out in my head is, like, night and day. Because Mm -hmm. at the end of the movie, they obviously end up together. But it's like you watch his behavior out of context of the movie. If it weren't for the kind of, like, wish-bang swoosh sensation of the movie it's like wow this guy's actually pretty abusive and mean to her (laughs) (laughs) and the other thing the other kind of thing he talks about with this trope is that the way they kind of try to get around the criticism of writing the story is that the woman is feisty you know she like obviously back talks a lot but maybe uh, maybe the lesson she needs to learn is she's too feisty for her own good and maybe if she just listened to that man, I mean, he wants what's best for her, goddammit. Like, why doesn't she just listen? She's so irrational. <laughs> and that's ultimately the point he gets to, is that this kind of kidnapping as romance kind of works as a powerment in fantasy for the roles of men in society, where it's like, they just know best. They just want to protect their women. And if only they'd listen, they could have just gotten out of this <laughs> so much easier. 
Well, it's it's out of a desire to see women be independent, but to that limit where <laughs> the men are still in control of the situation. I, I'm I'm glad he used the example of 2010's Night and Day. Um, <laughs> this is for everybody who's watching FX at 3:30 on a, on a Thursday. <laughs> so I, I I find it fascinating that he's using these these very I think long forgotten. This movie's nine years old at this point. Oh, that's just one example. Like, and yeah. the reason why I brought it up is because I completely forgot that that movie existed, but it is kind of the perfect mm-hmm. example of that. There's like 10 yeah. million other movies that he uses, like Indiana Jones mm-hmm. quite frequently gets brought up, all three movies, or actually just the first two, but still. He doesn't specifically kind of use one movie. He, he'll, he'll start off uh, the uh, video essay usually with like one example, but then from there he'll kind of sprawl out and just use... Just the most wonderful assortment of clips, just beautifully edited, just moi, just brilliant. So uh, I think he's quite good, and he's obviously doing a service, trying to get people to examine how masculinity is portrayed in our media. One of the other interesting ones I want to highlight is he was talking about Fantastic Beasts, um, specifically about the the Harry Potter spin-off. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm a layman. You're going to have to. Okay. You're going to have to explain some context for me. (laughs) Okay. You mean Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Yes, exactly. And it's okay. its sequel, Crimes of Grindelwald. Mm. Okay. Um, the main character is named Newt Scamander. He's played by Eddie Rainbane. And one of the common complaints yeah. is the fact that, oh, he's so boring. He's not very interesting. And he's not very dynamic. And his excuse, his argument is, well, it's because he's not a wisecracking sexist. He's not like a sarcastic <laughs> know-it-all. He's a kind, caring, nurturing person. And so, yes, he's obviously not Star-Lord, but isn't it nice to kind of see a, a, cha- a change of pace every once in a while? Like to see a nice kind of maternal male figure in an in a action-leading role? Like isn't that kind of like a nice change of pace? It doesn't make the movies any better. Well, you just, you just told on yourself by assuming that that's what maternal means, is caring. <laughs> I guess, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> you were consigning women to that particular role, mm. but I, I don't know, just to jump off that, that point, uh, you're right, Newt Scarmander is a little bit nerdier, not exactly the active or active protagonist that we see, say, Chris Pratt play. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just the way in which it's written because he's designed to be nosy and the way in which the stories are supposed to unfold, he's supposed to be compelled by the sense of justice or the caring for the fantastic beasts in the magical world. Like, I, I don't know, I, I hate to use this word, the realm. He cares about the the <laughs> the, uh, the uh, sanctity of the realm and keeping the wizarding world and the muggle world separate. I, I think maybe that's where some people are also losing the, the disconnect because they can't understand that motivation. Whereas they can see, like, Star-Lord, somebody who's damaged by the loss of parents and you know, wanting to be a rogue... Like, they can understand that maybe a little bit more. Or maybe it's fulfilling their wishes a little bit more. Oh, absolutely. Because that's the other thing, too. I mean, this is this is entertainment. This is, we're supposed to see ourselves in these characters and escape in them. So, mm-hmm. I mean, why do you think Harry Potter initially was just so popular to begin with? It's because Harry Potter is not really much of a character. He's a blank slate. <laughs> <laughs> he's the chosen one. And he also just happens to be rich. And he's really not that active a protagonist either. He kind of just goes along with things as things happen around him. So he's kind of the perfect insert character, and I think that's why those movies and books and that whole series was so popular. So now that they're actually mm-hmm. creating a new series with an actual real character at its heart, it doesn't really work anymore. At least people aren't connecting to it on the same level. I, I 
guess not. Well, th- there are a myriad of reasons why people may not be uh, connecting with it, but I will I will save my criticisms for a fantastic <laughs> piece and where to find them for another day. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> this is Spotlight. We're supposed to be positive. Positive, folks. Exactly. Positive. Yeah. Well, let's, let's keep it positive. All right. Yeah. So what's it called? The movie detective agency? Uh, pop culture detective agency. Pop culture. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So... Mm-hmm. You, you were right sometimes. You also recommended to me Lindsay Ellis on this very podcast, and she is she's a clever one. She's so. dynamite. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's a, she's a dynamite broad. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know about this detective agency guy. I don't, I don't like I don't like this dick, but <laughs> he's a gumshoe, Greg. <laughs> I know. And check out them gams. <laughs> whenever I, whenever I talk old timey, I have to throw that in. <laughs> check out these gams. <laughs> well, John, you may not you may not feel as though. Uh, YouTube channel is a worthy spotlight, but I have one that's even less worthy. No, oh it's another podcast. Oh no, yeah. I don't think you've ever. Well, actually, no. You have recommended podcasts on this before, but usually I'm the I'm the bad one. I'm usually the one recommending a <laughs> mo- lot more often, and basically diverting any potential audience we had for this podcast away. So <laughs> exactly, we hate acknowledging other podcasts. They are our enemies, mm-hmm. and we want to eviscerate and destroy them via our <laughs> listenership. <laughs> But this one I want to wholeheartedly recommend because it's a longtime and beloved comedian. Do you know who James Adomian is? Ah, uh, yes. I'm familiar with James <laughs> Adomian. Yes. Well, he's finally, he's finally launched his first uh, podcasting solo project after many years guesting on a number of podcasts. He's, he's got his own, and it's called The Underculture. Mm. You, you, you actually sent me an episode of this, if I recall correctly. <laughs> Yes. He couldn't wait for, for Spotlight. He had to email it to me directly into my inbox. Yes. <laughs> yes. For those that don't know, James Adomian is a stand-up comedian, best known as an impressionist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think his most well-known impression is of Bernie Sanders, and that's when he started to hit. It was when Bernie Sanders ended the presidential campaign in 2015, and he had this impression that went on Funny or Die, and he had this uh, series of specials with the guy, I can't pronounce his last name, it's like Anthony something, who does a good (laughs) Donald Trump impression. And so they had Sanders versus Trump and a lot of good comedy bits. He came up through Uptight Citizen Brigades and guested on a number of podcasts, and that was my first exposure to him. I don't think his uh, Bernie Sanders uh, impression is, is particularly exceptional, but I do love his impression of one Sebastian Gorka. <laughs> now, in case you don't know, Sebastian Gorka is just a, a brilliant buffoon, <laughs> former White House advisor, current uh, radio host, I believe. He's just he he appears on Fox News sometimes as this bilevating uh, numbskull. <laughs> who's he's like, a ghoul. A, West, yeah, he's a ghoul, saying like Western tradition. I th- I think he was born in Hungary. He's an American citizen, but he has this faux British accent where it's like American culture will rise. <laughs> The, the, the leftists will fall, and their tyranny will not see the next day. And so James Adomian basically takes that and turns him into a Bond villain. Uh, that's that's the one skit I wanted to see where James Adomian plays him on his radio show as Judge Doom in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He he's so he's, he's so abhors the gay wedding on Arthur, but he knows the real enemy is Darkwing Duck. <laughs> And so that little, so he does these impressions. Basically, the format of each episode has uh, an opening skit where he's uh, impersonating somebody. Then he, ha- then he and a guest are basically do two different impressions and do a comedy sketch. 
and then following following that thirty minutes, then it's just a straight interview with uh, whoever friend he has on, whoever whatever guest uh, he just did an improv with. So so you do get a kind of best of both worlds. You get your comedy skit. You do get in your latter half. Granted, most of the latter half episodes are all about their time at like UCB. Mm-hmm. And if you're sick to death of <laughs> like inside comedy podcasts as I am, like it it can sometimes pique your interest, sometimes not. But yeah, I, it really comes down to the guests, and I think. Uh, a lot of the time he has people who aren't that particularly well-known yet and who aren't particularly yeah. that interesting yet, let's be honest. <laughs> They're still young in their careers. So, yeah. Um, and honestly, for me, I think that those kind of like improv sketch dragged on a little too long. And then to go into the whole, hey, now we're playing ourselves, like, I don't yeah. know, like, I usually turned it off at that point. Yeah, reminiscing, yeah, reminiscing <laughs> about the UCB days or something. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I think James Adomian is hilarious, and he's an extremely funny comedian, and yeah. obviously I love that Gorkup sketch you sent me. Yeah. <laughs> From what I've heard of this podcast, I don't know if I have the heart to recommend it, but I'm glad you like it, so good for you. <laughs> well, that's why I reserved my recommendation, because we're only four episodes in, mm-hmm. so maybe it'll evolve over time, but... The reason I reserved my recommendation for this week is because his latest episode, guest starring character actor Sam Pancake. I don't know if you know who that is. Uh, there's an actor out there named Sam Pancake. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he's the Sam Pancake. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, but... oh, oh okay. <laughs> yeah. He's the definitive one, let me tell you. All right. Um, but this episode with him broke me. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Because the comedy sketch involves him playing Mark Maron, and any impersonation or pastiche of Mark Maron will automatically win my heart. I don't care if the impression is done out of love. Mark Maron sucks. Anything that that <laughs> knocks him down and his grouchy neediness. Oh, come okay, on, I, Frank. What are I you fully doing? endorse. Oh, come on. <laughs> No, you're playing him way too sympathetically. Be like, no, 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 come on. I, I, you know, I, I just, I was just in a bad mood. I was in a bad space in 1998. Okay, and and I just want to know for good. I just want to know for good. Okay. <laughs> so obviously, it doesn't matter if it's the most uh, accurate impression. <laughs> the fact that he gets that the the, the surly character of of Mark Maron is great. <laughs> But he he's contrasted with Sam Pancake playing Rip Taylor. Oh, God. <laughs> Do you know who Rip Taylor is? Yes. <laughs> okay, I had no idea. Apparently he's like a low-rent Paul Lind, <laughs> which I, I'm sure you can envision because Paul Lind was a paragon of comedy back in the 70s. <laughs> Again, Greg, Pride Month. It's in, it's infiltrated. Okay, we're talking about Paul exactly. Lane. We're talking about James Adomian. It's 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 all coming together. <laughs> yeah. So this was the best episode by far because the improv sketch was premised on Mark Barron, you know, trying to get trying to get something uh, genuine and emotional. You know, trying to make sure are we good? Are we good? <laughs> and then Sam Pancake playing Rip Taylor is like, hello, <laughs> I opened for Judy Garland three years. <laughs> Have you seen the inflation lately? A tattoo is now a tat three. <laughs> oh, God. Pumpernickel bread is now a pump for quarter. <laughs> Look, the important thing to remember, Greg, is there's no right way to do comedy, okay? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, so literally I, I died listening to this last episode. And I'm sure there are other moments that will really pique your funny bone um, in the Underculture podcast, which you should listen to today, after you download and listen to this one. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. As long as they know the order that comes in first. They download ours first, okay? Yes. <sighs> I'm just so sick of having to push ourselves. <laughs> Why aren't we famous yet? Why don't we have a Patreon? Is, just, is that what you do this for, John? The fame? You're right. We don't do this for the fame. We do it for the movies. Yes, we do it for the right reasons, yes. okay? 
finding love. <laughs> I think we have found love, Greg. We found yeah. our love. Jasmine is here for the wrong reasons, okay? <laughs> Je- What's the bachelor's name this season? Jed <laughs> like, or something? I don't know. Madison? Who cares? <laughs> Madison. <laughs> Someone on Twitter posted two pictures of two different contestants on The Bachelorette, and she's like, you cannot convince me these are two different human beings. <laughs> and I believed her. I believed her. That show Fair is trash. Enough. That show is garbage. <laughs> I worry about our culture, people. <laughs> and now, John, you're worried about our culture I now. I suppose. <laughs> you're right. Should have seen it yeah, coming. Did, did, did you not hear me allude to Rip Taylor? I suppose. I suppose. Earlier. I just, you know, I, I like to live in my bubble, Greg, okay? That's what the internet, my mm. my little cocoon, my little cocoon, my little safe space. Yes, our silos, as it were. Mm. Um, and have we got the silo for you. Yes, join our silo when you follow Aspiring Snobs on social media. Or the social meds, as the cool kids call it these days. <laughs> Facebook.com backslash Aspiring Snobs, all one word. <laughs> As well as twitter.com backslash aspiring snobs. Well, you got that word. ant symbol. I don't know what that's called, but then you have uh, uh, aspiring snobs. And then also on Instagram, we just joined Instagram. You can also follow us at aspiring snobs. Yes. Uh, I don't know where we're going to post yet, but it'll be great. Trust no, us. Oh, yes. There's just so much content every day. Content, mm. content, content. Your life is content now, people. <laughs> now, granted, that's a great way to get to us publicly. Mm-hmm. But if you want to reach us privately in our more intimate moments, saucy, we do have an email address, aspiringsnobs at gmail.com, where we are taking recommendations, feedback. Um, If you have any questions for us that you would like us to answer on air, we'd be happy to do that at aspiringsnobs at Mm gmail.com. And then once you've done all that, you can go to your podcast service of choice, wherever you're listening to this episode, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify you can give us a five-star review. Please leave us a five-star review and give us a subscribe. Hit that subscribe button, and that'll help others find our podcast. Because the more you rate positively and the more you subscribe, the more people this podcast reaches. Yes, and we'll, get, we'll achieve that fame that we so desperately want. I'm just, I'm so, I, I need the social currency. I need those yeah. likes. Without those <laughs> likes, I'm starving. In body, I'm fat, but in spirit, I'm thin. Because I need those <laughs> likes. <laughs> No, thin is a good thing. So you want to be thin. <laughs> in I'm mal- spirit. I'm, my spirit is malnourished, and oh boy. Okay, maybe that's. I, okay. Am I ready for that spirit beach body? <laughs> yep. That spirit beach bikini. Mm. One area where we are not malnourished is our brains, mm. our magnificent brains, because we're going to continue uh, expanding our horizons with a new film next week. Well, Greg, it's the summer, and it's blockbuster season. Yeah. And let this, me. But this seems to be contrary to the ethos of this podcast, where we aspire to film snobdom via uh, art films like Jeanne, that three-hour film <laughs> where she just potters around the kitchen. <laughs> oh, Greg! But sometimes there's a magical movie that crosses worlds. Sometimes it becomes just that perfect movie that lines up directly into that little sliver of that Venn diagram, and that's why we're revisiting the 2015 classic, Mad Max: Fury Road. <laughs> I'm glad I I intentionally avoided this film four years ago, because it critics fawned over it and suddenly became the conventional conventional wisdom said this is the greatest movie of all time and I I said no sir either either I can be I could see it in being contrarian or just avoid it and dismiss all of that praise so 
I'm, I'm glad with a bit of distance I can <laughs> now evaluate this movie with fresh eyes. Well, I've seen it a handful of times since it came out. I actually saw it in theaters because I don't think we had anything else going on that weekend. So it'll be interesting to see if my opinion has changed. I doubt it has, but... <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, I guess we're going to have to save that opinion for next week. Mm, I'm such a tease. I'm such a tease. Mm, saucy. <laughs> I love being saucy. What can I say? It's Pride Month. I'm allowed to be. Uh, that's right. <laughs> you, you speak your truth, John. I feel like... Uh, do you feel seen yet? Or I mean... Uh, do you want to be seen? Until I buy that t-shirt. Until person. I bought that Target t-shirt. No. But now I have to buy that Target t-shirt. <laughs> and you know what? Yes. <laughs> Every year it's actually... So they don't do... It's funny. June is Pride Month. and they, for, But for uh, Southern Californians, Pride doesn't really start until July. Yeah. When did it become Pride Month? Um... Well, Stonewall happened in June, so I think that's why they kind of made that the designator. But there's pride events that happen all of the summer because, you know, sun's out, gun's out. So, like... Well, yeah, that's why I'm wondering, like, pride parades have been a thing since the 90s or so. Well, I mean, Stonewall kind of started. when did the hashtag come in? That's what I'm wondering. Oh, who cares? Like, when did it become (laughs) National Donut Day? When did it become all these ridiculous Uh, holidays? Like, National Puppy Day or Black History Month. It's insane. (laughs) (laughs) I... Warning, warning, John is being ironic. (laughs) But, yeah, that's... I wanted the official designation because Black History Month... Obviously, written by Congress to observe, uh, oppress minority, and acknowledge them for one month. I don't know why it's not part of our curriculum as a whole, but whatever. Mm-hmm. We'll, take, we'll take what we can get. Mm-hmm. So, same with Pride Month. Like, was was it a congressional action? Like, how how did it, or did we all just agree? Like, this is the time, and then hence hashtag. That's what I'm wondering. Like, when when did the consensus form around June being Pride Month? I I think it was one of those organic grassroots things where we all decided yes, June is Pride Month. Same thing with March being International Women's History Month or whatever. So these things just happen. They just naturally happen. No one no one can decree this or that or the other. It's just it. Let the people decide. And Lord knows gays are always the loudest in the room. So why not? You can't argue. <laughs> exactly. I feel th- I feel that... <laughs> I'm going to shut up. Never mind. <laughs> no, no, no. You had a good thought there. <laughs> you were like, exactly. And that's all we have to say. <laughs> yeah. All right. Sounds like we're powering down. So <laughs> thank you, yes. everybody, for listening. <laughs> and until next time, keep inspiring. <laughs> Glitter. Yay. <laughs> oh, you're bad. You're bad. You were born this way. Let's be